is Tim Ells. I'm uh, an elder here at South Shore Baptist Church. But back in 1978, I was just a graduate from college, and I came back to find that the church had uh, hired a new youth pastor. His name was Jim Nicodem, and he and his wife Sue had started a youth ministry here. And when he arrived, he found that there was about 12 senior high students in the ministry. And when he left in 1980, there were 120 senior high school students in the youth ministry. Jim went on to seminary at Trinity in Illinois. And then in 1985, he and six couples started a church in St. Charles, Illinois, Christ Community Church. And that church is now over 4,000 people attending. Uh, Jim is a great friend of mine. He's been uh, an inspiration to me. He's uh, a, uh, been an inspiration to many people. His uh, ministry has touched the lives of uh, countless students here in this area and out in uh, the Chicago area, uh, many adults as well. He uh, also has a ministry beyond his church. He's a speaker uh, known nationally and has uh, involved quite a bit in missions in the Czech Republic and also in Russia. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Jim Nicodem, and I'd like you to give him a big hand of welcome. It's hard to believe it's been 25 years. How many of you were here 25 years ago? How many of you were alive <laughs> 25 years ago? Yeah. You know, Sue and I came here newly married, and now this summer, we've got three kids, we're preparing a wedding for the end of the summer for our oldest, and uh, that's hard to believe, and so we're going to take a second offering right now, <laughs> ask you to participate. Now, uh, I, have, uh, I have three kids, the oldest two have been at Moody Bible Institute, my uh, oldest daughter just graduated and is joining her fiancé in ministry out in Seattle. Uh, where he's in the uh, church planting business, and my second daughter will be a junior head Moody, and I've got a uh, an 18-year-old son as well. And uh, it's really a privilege to come back and see what God's doing at South Shore Baptist Church. And uh, I'm just going to invite you to pray with me. We're going to jump right in and take a look at God's Word together. Would you pray? Father, the song we just sang reminds us that there's coming a day when Jesus will be exalted and he will establish his forever reign over heaven and earth. And we know that now. We have bowed our knee before him, those of us who confess him to be Savior and Lord. But we, we know that when that day comes, there will be many who are spiritually lost for all eternity because they've never bowed their knee, never bowed their heart to you. And so as we look to your word today to consider to consider your calling on our life, to spread the good news, the life-changing news of Jesus. I pray that you would open, uh, open us up to what you brought us here to teach us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a, uh, there was a tragic fire in my hometown of Batavia recently. A home burned to the ground and a family lost their lives. And the local newspaper sent a reporter, an investigative reporter, the next day to figure out what was, uh, what was going on behind the fire. And she discovered, to her chagrin, that the night before, the night of the fire, three different fire stations had been alerted to the emergency, but no firefighters had shown up. And so she decided to look into it uh, a little further, and she went to the first fire station and said, well, what were you guys doing last night? 
And the chief said, well, you know, that's our night of training. We sort of break the guys down into small groups and we gather around tables and we open the firefighter's manual and we study it together. It's really an essential part of what we do. She couldn't believe what she was hearing, so she went to the second fire station and she said, where were you guys last night? And they said, you know, we never heard the alarm. The dance band was going so loud. We have a, an annual daddy-daughter dance night. And as I'm always telling the guys, family comes before job. And she shrugged her shoulders and she walked out. She went to the third fire station and she said, why didn't you guys show up last night? And the, the chief said, well, you know, it's the big night of the week for us. We have this huge service. The, the captain comes and he gives us a pep talk and we sing firefighter songs and Several of the guys give testimonies of how they got called to be firefighters. And, and uh, Here a, a home had burned down, a family had lost their lives, and the people who were responsible for the, the rescue had found that other priorities were preoccupying them. Now, by no, now you probably have figured out I'm making the whole story up. But it's, it's a parable, a parable with a moral, and you'll understand the moral if you'll substitute for firefighters, Christ followers. Jesus has called us to be part of a rescue mission. Now you could read about it in passages like Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says that our, our world is perishing, that people are lost in their sins, and one day will stand before a holy God to give an account of their lives and have to pay for those sins for all eternity. And the punishment for unplugging yourself from the giver of life is death. The wages of sin is death. Now Jesus says he's given us a message, the message of what he came to do. He came to bear the sins of the world so that those who put their hope and their trust in him could be forgiven and have eternal life. We are on a rescue mission. And this morning I want to ask you, how are you doing as a rescuer? How is South Shore Baptist Church doing as a rescue mission? You know, sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in the thick of thin things. To get caught up in even good priorities like the firefighters. Things related to family and things related to church work and so on. But to miss our calling to rescue people who are perishing for all eternity. Now if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 4 in your New Testament. John 4 is the story of Jesus' encounter with a spiritually lost person. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. The story is going to inspire you, challenge you, I'm sure. And as we take a closer look at it in Scripture, I'd also like to weave some contemporary stories into what I have to say this morning. Stories taken from a book I just finished reading recently called The Unchurched Next Door. The Unchurched Next Door. It's written by a pollster by the name of Thomas Rayner. Uh, Mr. Rayner is a Christian, and he loves to survey unbelievers, unchurched people, to find out what is it that keeps them from a relationship with God. And I, I'd like to share some of the uh, research that he's uncovered and related to this uh, text we're going to look at in John chapter 4. Let me give you a little background for the passage. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have been on a journey that has taken them through hostile territory, through the region of Samaria. And they've stopped outside this little town called Sychar, and Jesus has sat down on the side of a well, and his disciples have said to him, Jesus, why don't you rest here, and we'll go into town and we'll get some food. So as Jesus is seated there at the side of the well, a woman comes to draw water. Now, it's somewhat unusual because it's the middle of the day. People in the heat of the day in that part of the world never went out to draw water. 
We soon discover in the beginning part of John chapter 4 why she was out when nobody else was at the well. She had a tainted reputation. She'd gone through five husbands. In fact, the, the guy that she was currently living with was not her husband. And as Jesus is sharing with her, he turns the conversation to spiritual matters. In fact, he shares with, with her something he has never yet shared in his ministry with anybody else. His personal identity as the Messiah, the Savior whom God has sent to the world. Just about at this point in the conversation, the disciples return from town with the food that they went to get. And this is where we pick up the text in John chapter 4. And what I want to do is uh, take a closer look at Jesus as he's on a rescue mission with this Samaritan woman. A rescue mission that not only leads ultimately to her salvation, but also serves as a model to his disciples. And we're going to learn four things about our rescue mission from the verses that we're going to study together. We're going to learn four steps that are required for those who want to be fulfilling, fulfilling their calling, their responsibility to rescue a spiritually lost world. If you have a piece of paper and a pencil, you're going to want to jot these down, so uh, get ready to go. Here's the first step. You need a connection. If you want to follow in Jesus' footsteps, if you want to be about the rescue mission to which he's called you, you need a connection. And by that, I mean you need a relationship with people who don't yet know Christ. I want you to pick up the text with me at verse 27 and follow along as I read. John 4, verse 27. Just then his disciples returned... And they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. If you got your own Bible, circle the word surprise. We'll come back to that. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Stop right there for a moment. The disciples were surprised, verse 27 says, to find him talking with a woman. Surprised is really an understatement. In the uh, original language of the text, the word meant to be astonished, to be amazed. In fact, it's the very same word used in the Gospels to describe people's reactions to Jesus' miracles. Now, they were surprised, and in this case, they, they were surprised to find him talking with this woman. Why is that? Several reasons come to mind. First, because they had left him in a state of exhaustion and no doubt expected to come, come back and find him relaxing under the shade of a tree nearby, not involved in an intensive spiritual dialogue with somebody. They were surprised, no doubt, because the person he was talking with was a woman. And in those days, guys didn't waste their time talking to women because they were deemed to be intellectually inferior. And if you were a rabbi, you would never be caught dead talking to a woman. If you had any time to talk to anybody, you ought to be talking to God. That's what rabbis did. And, and still a third reason why they were surprised is probably because this was a Samaritan woman and Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. Years earlier, uh, Jews had intermarried with pagans and their offspring were Samaritans. So Samaritans were religious half-breeds. So when Jesus' disciples arrive on the scene and see him talking with this woman, they wonder, what in the world is he doing? What is Jesus doing? The answer is he's establishing a connection with a spiritually lost person. He's establishing a connection that was meant to lead her to eternal life, but also to serve as an example to his disciples. The question is, did they get it? Did they get what he was up to? 
Or a better question for us today is, do we get it as we study this passage? You've probably heard the same statistic that I've heard according to surveys that have been done. The average Christ follower, listen to this, the average believer after knowing Jesus for just three years has cut himself or herself off from all unbelieving friends. Three years of knowing the Lord and you've made all new friends. You're hanging out with a totally different group of people. There are a lot of neat activities. You find yourself involved in Bible studies and worship services and church ministries. Some of us even find ourselves working for Christian organizations or going to private Christian schools. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. It's just that all that stuff, all that Christian stuff, can keep us apart from people who need Jesus. So what's the solution? We've got to prioritize connecting. We've got to prioritize building relationships with unchurched friends. Now, for most of us who, who lead busy lives, that means literally putting it on the calendar so we ensure that it happens. It may even mean cutting back on some of the hanging, hanging out we do with fellow Christ followers so that we've got time to spend with spiritual seekers. Tom Rainer, the pollster I, I mentioned earlier, interviewed Emily. A few months before he interviewed Emily, Emily was not a Christ follower. Emily had no interest in attending church. Uh, there were no precipitating crises going on in Emily's life that would lead her to investigate a relationship with God. But Emily had a friend named Celeste. Celeste had a son on the high school basketball team, and Emily's son played on the high school basketball team, and so they would often find themselves seated side by side in the stands watching their sons play. Celeste happened to be a Christian, and over time she shared with Emily her relationship with Christ and invited Emily to come to church. And after just a couple of months at Celeste's church, Emily put her hope and her trust in Christ. And she told Tom Rayner this as, as he interviewed her. She said, you need to understand that I went from totally unchurched, I mean no church background, no knowledge of church, to becoming a Christ follower in just a matter of weeks. One person, she said, made a difference. One person cared. And then Emily added these convicting words. She said, what I'm still trying to figure out is with the millions of so-called Christians in America, how is it it took 43 years for someone to share Christ with me? Where were all the other Christians? Where were all the other Christians? You know where they probably were. They were hanging out with other Christians. They were attending church services and going to worship team rehearsals and participating in small group Bible studies and taxiing their kids to youth ministry events and meeting with spiritual accountability partners at Starbucks, all good activities. But if there's no time left to connect with, with unchurched friends, and Jesus models for us what to do. And you know what? Even though the disciples weren't swift enough to catch on at this point, the woman had caught on. Because the scripture tells us, I just read it a moment ago, that as soon as the disciples interrupted her conversation with Jesus, she left her water pot at the well and she raced into town and she got all her friends, most of whom were guys, to come out and meet this man who had, by what he told her, begun to transform her life. She was connected. The first question I want to ask you this morning as we apply this text to our lives is, how connected are you? How connected am I? 
Again, let me repeat, the longer you know Christ, and some of you have known Christ for 5 years, or 15 years, or 35 years, or 50 years, the longer you know Christ, the greater the effort you're going to need to make to cultivate relationships with friends who don't know Jesus. And if I could give you a tip here, the tip would be, don't always choose Christ followers to be your mechanic or your piano teacher or your hairdresser or the people you carpool with or golf with or you use for home decorating projects or, or whatever. I regularly have people in my church tell me stuff like, you know, I just moved into a new house and I've got a Christian living on either side of me. Isn't that great? And I want to say, how boring. How boring. No, that's not great. Mix it up. Go make some friends. Reach out. Connect with someone who doesn't share your love for Christ. Here's the second step. You need a connection. Secondly, you need a calling. You need a sense of divine calling. And I want to pick the text up again at verse 31 where we left off. And let me continue reading. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now stop there. Have you ever been so into something that you totally lost track of time? Have you ever been so into something that you lost track of meal time? Some of you love fishing and there's probably been an occasion in your past when you were so into catching fish that, you know, the lunch hour came and went and you didn't even, you didn't even recall you had packed yourself a sandwich, hadn't eaten it yet. Or you've been into finishing a project at work and you look up as the project is completed and lo and behold, it's, it's 2 o'clock and you missed lunchtime and didn't even notice. Or, or you're on a shoe-buying mission. There's a sale and... Am I getting close to home? Okay. You're so into your algebra homework. Okay, this is totally unrealistic now. Jesus was so into what he was doing that he, he hadn't even missed the meal that his disciples had gone in search of. In fact, the scripture I just read says that when they returned with some food for him, Jesus said he was already full, full with what he'd been up to. What had filled Jesus up? What, what was the mysterious food that Jesus had been eating that made the disciples' offer look like cold leftover carryout from Taco Bell? Jesus says he'd been doing what God had sent him to do. Which was what? Rescuing a spiritually lost person. See, Jesus had a very clear sense of his calling, and fulfilling that calling was ultimately rewarding. It was like eating a big meal for Jesus. Do you have a riveting sense of your calling? You know, this is something that people are all about these days. In fact, maybe you read the same news that I read recently. What, what is now the best-selling hardcover book in American history other than the Bible? The Purpose Driven Life by Pastor Rick Warren. Bestseller in 2003, bestseller in 2004, still at the top of the best seller list. Let me read to you the opening paragraph of Rick Warren's book. He says, it's not about you. I love that opening. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, even your happiness. 
It's far greater than your family, your career, even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. Because you were born by His purpose and for His purpose. See, God puts you on this planet for a divine purpose. Do you know what that purpose is? Now, I know what your, your life purpose is in broad brushstrokes. I may not know you well enough to know the details of God's purpose for your life, but I know what your overall purpose is, because if you're a Christ follower, your purpose is the same as that of Jesus. God puts you on this planet for the same reason he sent Jesus to this earth, and the reason I know that is because in John's Gospel, a little later on, we find Jesus praying. John 17, verse 18, and he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them, my followers, into the world. Same reason you sent me, I'm sending them. A few chapters later, Jesus turns to his followers themselves. Chapter 20, verse 21, says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So if you want to know what your purpose is, you've got to figure out what Jesus' purpose was. Why was Jesus sent into the world? Jesus declares it this way. He says, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to rescue spiritually perishing people. Why does Jesus send us into the world. What is our life purpose? What is our ultimate calling? It's to play a part in rescuing spiritually lost people, friends. And if you're a Christ follower, you've got to ask yourself the question, am I in sync with that calling? Because if you're not in sync with that calling, listen, if you're not in sync with that calling, you will not only lack a sense of ultimate purposefulness, you will also fail the people around you miserably. Much like the firefighters in my opening illustration, who not only missed their calling as firefighters, but a family lost their lives in the blaze. Remember that? Deanna lives in Hawaii. Deanna was interviewed by Tom Rayner. She is a brand new Christ follower, thanks to a serviceman who was stationed in her hometown for a little bit of time and led her to Christ. Shortly after becoming a believer, Deanna saw in her local newspaper that there was a Bible study starting up in her hometown. And so she registered for it, and she went to the meeting location. And when she walked in the door, she was surprised to see some people. She knew friends of hers from her neighborhood. And she walked up to the first friend, and she said, Excuse me, Jennifer, are you a, are you a Christ follower? And Jennifer beamed, and she said, Well, yes, I am. Huh. Deanna went on to uh, Debbie and she said, excuse me, Debbie, are, are you a committed believer? And Debbie says, oh yeah, I have been for some years. And Deanna went down the row interviewing uh, person after person she knew. Finally she had heard enough. This is what she says to Tom Rainer, the pollster. She said, I told them that I had lived in the neighborhood for eight years and none of them had ever told me about Christ. I guess I got too emotional because I told them, listen to this, I told them they might as well have told me to go to hell because that's what their silence had said. Ouch. We have a calling, friends. Just as the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus is, is sending us. It's Jesus who puts you in the neighborhood where you live if you're a follower of His. It's Jesus who puts you in the job that you might not even like, but He's put you there for a purpose, for the sake of the people around you. It's Jesus who puts you in that choir at school or on that soccer team. It's Jesus 
who sent you to the, the dentist with your tooth that needs to be capped or your a car that needs a mechanic's attention. As the Father sent him to the world, so Jesus has sent us. If we ignore our calling, we lack ultimate purpose and people perish. But if with God's help we pursue our calling, we experience unbelievable fulfillment. And God's, God's will is to redirect through us the eternal destinies of others. What do we need if we want to be about this rescue mission? We need a connection with spiritually lost people. Secondly, we need a sense of our calling, what God says we're to be all about. Thirdly, we need a confidence. So let's go back to the text and pick it up this time at verse 35. Let me continue reading. Do you not say, Jesus says, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. You've reaped the benefits of their labor. Do you remember, talk to Mary Guys here for a moment, do you remember how unsettling it was when you set out to ask that girl to the big event, for, for the first time you were asking her out, maybe it was the high school homecoming dance or the, or the prom, and you had no idea whether or not she was going to say yes. And so your stomach was doing all sorts of cartwheels. And then through the grapevine, because you always hear these things, through the grapevine, through the grapevine you hear that she likes you and that if you ask her out, she'll say yes. And suddenly you have all the confidence you need. Suddenly you're bold as a lion. Remember those? Some of you guys are nodding. Yeah, you remember those days. When I was a freshman in college, end of my freshman year, uh, I wanted to take Sue out. But I wasn't sure, would, would she say yes? There was a huge social event. Or would she turn me down? And, and about as the time I was deliberating this matter, I got a little note from her in my college post office box. And she said, you know, with summer coming on, I thought maybe we could get together, have a cup of coffee, and talk about our summer plans. Well, I took that note, I raced back to my dorm room, I got a couple buddies together, I spread it out on the desk, we read it, and tried to, to determine, what is she saying? <laughs> and we determined, she was saying, as my friend said, she wants you, man. And, and I discovered they were right. I asked her out, and she said yes. And now we've been married 27 years. <laughs> Did you know that Jesus tells us something in this passage here, verse 35, look at it again, that ought to make us bold when it comes to reaching out to spiritually lost people? What is it Jesus says? He says they're ripe for harvest. In other words, many of the people to whom you're going to speak are ready for the message you have to share with them. Interesting side note here. If you're reading in the New International Version, it says they're ripe for harvest. In the original Greek, the word was white. They're white for harvest. And Jesus' first century listeners would have known this was just a synonym. A white harvest field meant it was, it was ripe. But Bible scholars conjecture that Jesus also used this word white for another reason. There was a wordplay going on. That as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's probably looking over their shoulder and he sees cresting the ridge a group of people who are coming from town. The people whom this woman has reached out to and brought to see the Savior. And in the breeze, their white turbans and their white cloaks are flowing. 
And Jesus says to his disciples, Would you look? The harvest is white. The harvest is white. The harvest is ripe. Did you know that there are people all around you who are spiritually ripe? They're ripe for harvest. The Bible tells us before anyone comes to Christ, God has to prepare their hearts. If God didn't prepare their hearts, they'd never be humble enough to acknowledge their sin. You know, if God wasn't working in their hearts, they wouldn't be wise enough to recognize Christ as the Savior. They wouldn't be inclined, even if they recognized Him as Savior, they wouldn't be inclined to reach out and receive Him. And so right now, you can count on the fact that there, listen, there are people in your life in whose hearts God is at work. They are spiritually ripe. Tom Rainer's research bears this out in the opening chapter of his book, The Unchurched Next Door. Rainer notes a number of things from his surveys that surprised him. Let me give you just a few examples. He discovered from surveying unchurched people that most of the unchurched feel guilty about not attending church, especially if they have kids. So the neighbors that you drove by, as they were watering their lawns this morning on your way to church, you know what? Many of them feel they ought to be in church, even though they're not here. He found from his research that most of the unchurched have a positive view of church and of pastors. What's not to lie? He discovered 33% of the unchurched believe that the Bible is true, an additional 46% believe it's generally true and applicable to their lives. People out there who feel there may be something in this book that they ought to get in touch with. 82, this is the most amazing, 82% of the unchurched say they are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they are invited. 82% say they're somewhat likely to attend church if they are invited. Now let me tell you the flip side of all that research. What I found most amazing of all was a statistic that had to do with churched people, not unchurched people. Rainer discovered that only 21% of active churchgoers invite anyone to church in the course of a year, and only 2% of those are unchurched. Uh, you, you get a uh, hold of all these statistics. 82% of the people out there, what is that? Four out of five? Three out of four? My math. Four out of five? Four out of five people say they're somewhat likely to come to church if they're invited, but only one out of five of those of us who go to church ever reach out and invite someone in the course of a year, and only 2% of those are unchurched. The others we're inviting are people who already go to other churches. When I read... Rainer's statistics, I thought to myself, what are we afraid of? We should be super confident. Friends, yes, there will be friends who turn us down, but there are others out there who have been prepared by God to respond to our initiative. Mark is 36 years old. He lives in Florida. Mark is not yet a Christ follower, but he's been coming to church the last several months. Now, until recently... As uh, Tom Rayner interviewed him, Mark said he had rarely attended church, maybe for a funeral or a wedding. But a short while back, one of his co-workers invited him to go to church, and Mark has been going with him ever since. Now listen to this exchange with the pollster. The pollster asks, so Mark, why, why did you decide to go to church? Mark says, well, because Chad invited me. The pollster, come on, no other reason? Mark, no, just because I was invited. The pollster, had anyone invited you to church before? Mark, nope, no one. 
the pollster, in all the 36 years of your life? Mark, no, no one in all my life. And Rayner concludes, he says, here is a lifelong unchurched person who goes to church at the very first invitation. And then he adds, we in the churches are searching and agonizing over ways to reach the spiritually lost and unchurched world. And yet research indicates that a simple invitation may be the most cutting-edge approach we can employ. Now, Rainer is just discovering what Jesus pointed out 2,000 years ago in John 4, friends. That there is a ripe harvest out there. In fact, in the verses I read to you a moment ago, Jesus said it is so ripe that in some cases the reaper is following on the heels of the sower. There's not even a, there's not even a, a four-month period during which the, the, the seed is, is growing and, and ripening. It's, it's like that. People are ready to respond. I, you know, I hope this is stretching your faith for the sake of your neighbors. For successful outreach, you need a connection with them. You need a sense of calling that this is what you're to be all about. And third, you need a confidence that God's already working in their hearts. He's preparing the way. And fourth and finally, you need a conversation. Go back to the text one last time. Pick it up in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now look at the text I just read. What is it that initially prompts the people of Samaria to put their faith in Jesus? Verse 39. It's the woman's testimony. Verse 42, it's what she had said to them. Now let me point out something very interesting here. Whenever Jesus is on his home turf, which is the region of Judea, he's doing miracles. And as a result of his miracles, we read in Scripture, some people believe, but most don't. Here he's in Samaria. He is in hostile territory, doesn't do a single miracle, and yet an entire town comes to faith in him. Why? Because of one woman's testimony, one woman's story. What does that tell you about the power of our words as we share the good news of what Christ has done in our lives, what Christ is doing in our lives? That a simple word may be more powerful than a miracle in bringing someone to Christ. And it takes words. It takes words. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10 that people don't believe unless they hear and people don't hear unless someone is speaking to them. Because sometimes I hear Christ followers say, well, you know, people at work, they know where I stand. Or my friends at school, they consider me, me, me to be a good example and I want to say, but what are they hearing from your lips? What story are you telling? What good news of Christ are you sharing? Because there's got to be a conversation. They've got to hear words. Tom Rainer has taken all the research he's done of unchurched people and he's put it in the form of a seminar. He goes around sharing with churches how they could reach out to their, their lost friends. And he was in one location, he does a Friday night, Saturday seminar, and on Friday night he had shared his preliminary stuff. And he said, you know, the very best tool that I would recommend 
for committed believers is to just take a three-by-five card and write on that card, whom did I tell about Jesus today? And post it on your bathroom mirror or in some location where you'll see it every day. Whom did I tell about Jesus today? Whom did I tell about Jesus today? Guy comes up to him after the Friday night seminar and he says, yeah, good idea, but how do you do that? And Rainer, who was a bit tired, a bit impatient at this point, he said, man, you just do it. Well, the guy stopped off in a huff. The next morning, Saturday morning, second day of the seminar, he came up to Rainer. He says, you know, when you said to me last night, you just do it, I was pretty ticked at you. He said, but I went home and I got to thinking about it. And then I got on my knees. And I told God I'm sorry for being silent for so long. And I confessed to him the sin of my silence. And I asked him to forgive me. And he said, you know, last night I had, after that conversation with God, for the first time in my life I had the opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus. And that person made a decision to trust Christ. And then his eyes filled up with tears and he said that person was my 16-year-old son. Friends, that's where it's got to begin for many of us. we just got to get on our knees and say, God, I confess to you my sin of silence. I've been quiet much too long about this good news. You called me to be on a rescue mission, and I've not been about my ultimate purpose. And you say, well, I, you know, I'm not too good with words. You know, are you good enough to extend an invitation to people? Because that's all this woman does in verse 29. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can you say to your friends, come with me some, some Sunday, would you, to South Shore Baptist Church? I've found it to be a spiritual, lively place. Or come with me and you, you name the outing you're going on that the, the church is sponsored. Maybe it's a men's golf outreach or it's a Bible study group that you're part of. Come with me. Invite him to come. As I close, I mean, let me just share with you a recent story from my own life of how this kind of stuff was put into practice. I have a neighbor across the street named Steve. And I've been looking for a connection first with Steve. No, Steve is not a, not a Christ follower. And so I would begin to time when I'd bring my trash to the end of the street on Thursday night for the, the garbage men to pick it up the next day. We don't, we don't live in a town with a dump. Well, I'm sure there's a dump, but uh, the garbage men take our garbage there. And so I'd arrange to be at the end of the street while he was bringing his garbage so that we could talk together. Or I would arrange, after I'd done my three-mile run, to do my cool-off walk right by the front of his house as he's coming home from work and, we talk, and a connection was developed. And then I had to really start praying. I started to pray that God would give me this sense of, of calling. This is what I was to be about. Rescuing Steve, sharing the good news of Christ with Steve. And prayed and prayed and prayed. God gave me the idea of starting a small group, just a short-run small group in April and May for eight successive Sunday nights. I picked a book and invited a group of half a dozen guys to join me in studying the book a chapter at a time. Not a Christian book per se, it's a business book on management. I knew that Steve was in a new management position at work, but this particular leadership book happens to be written by a Christian, and I thought it might open some doors to talk about faith. So I went over and invited Steve with a sense of calling and having established a connection. You know, Steve asks me the question, he says, is this a faith-based book? Right away I start to get cold feet and I start to backtrack and I say, well, no, actually it's been on the New York Times bestseller list, top 
one of the top three books, and, and uh, you know, I'm backpedaling like this. And Steve looks at me and says, oh, because my wife and I have just begun a spiritual journey and we're searching. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's written by a Christ follower, and, and I'm sure faith will come up in, in our discussions. And, and because, because God had begun to work in his heart, and I had a confidence that God was at work, I asked him to meet with me on several occasions, just go out and grab a cup of, of coffee at Starbucks, and on two occasions we sat for hours drawing diagrams on a napkin of how to, how to begin a relationship with Jesus. And just recently, Steve put his trust in Christ. And I want to tell you, there is no greater rush in the Christian life than seeing a friend come to know Jesus. Because as the Father sent Jesus, so he's sent me. And when I do what I'm supposed to be about, I experience such tremendous fulfillment. You know, may your light burn brightly, both personally as a church. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that as we go from this place today, that you would help us apply the truths of this scripture. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to come and to give your life for us. May we be willing to give our lives in rescue attempts of others. Put people on our hearts right now. Bring them to mind. Let us remember to write out that three-by-five card. Whom have I told about Jesus today? Fill us with your spirit. Give us an excitement about what you're doing in our lives and in this church. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you, Jim, for that practical encouragement in something that we all know that we need to do. And may God give us the strength to do it. I wonder, are Mark and Diane Stratmeyer here in the sanctuary? They're not here. Huh? Oh, they're, they're here. Okay.